everyone, welcome back to Let's Talk Entertainment Media. My name is John, and I'm going to be riding solo this week on the Let's Talk podcast. And I decided in honor of doing that, I'm going to count down my favorite films from each year that I have been alive. I had seen Jeff from Films at Home and the impressive Tony do this, and I thought, man, that's a great idea. I decided to do it myself, and that's what we're going to do today here on the show. But before we dive into that, if you are a fan of film reviews, 4K Blu-ray reviews, lists, and podcasts just like this, that this is the channel for you, and nothing helps this channel out more than by you just simply liking this video and subscribing to the channel. So like I said earlier, I was born in 1992, the sun was shining, I came into the world, and that year we had some fantastic films. It was actually really hard for me because if you asked me a couple years ago, I probably would have said Unforgiven, but now I am fully committed to saying that 1992's best film is Spike Lee's Malcolm X. I absolutely love this movie. Denzel Washington should have won the Academy Award for it, but unfortunately that went to Al Pacino that year, basically making up for what happened with the Godfather movies and him not winning the Academy Award then. So they gave it to him for Scent of a Woman, but Denzel Washington turns in arguably his best performance ever as the title character of Malcolm X. I think this is the best biopic film that has ever been released. Spike Lee's masterpiece, and that's saying something because it's either this or do the right thing, and then he has plenty of other great movies in there. But this epic film tells the tale of Malcolm X, one of the greatest civil rights leaders we've ever had. The film is told non-linearly as we see throughout his entire life leading up to his death in the 1960s and everything he's had to go through, all the changes in his life, the struggles that he's had to deal with, and the mistakes that he's made. It's a very human movie, it's a very real movie, it's a raw movie. And it could be a tough watch because a lot of people don't want to acknowledge exactly what happened back in the 1960s and the 50s and everything that was going on in the world back then. And to see it on screen like this, it is just told amazingly. It's a fantastic film. If you haven't seen Malcolm X, I can't say too much more about it other than to say it is just an incredible epic film one that you have to check out. And again, just some great performances in there. And Denzel Washington, one of the world's greatest actors, just knocks it out of the park in this one. And for 1993, I had a tough time because Philadelphia is one of my favorite movies ever starring Tom Hanks in it and Denzel Washington. So back-to-back years, Denzel Washington was just making killer movies. But I had to go with my heart on this one and I had to pick The Fugitive starring Harrison Ford. I think this is Harrison Ford's best movie role, even better than Indiana Jones and Han Solo in the Star Wars movies, better than Rick Deckard, I think he was born to play Dr. Richard Kimball. And then Tommy Lee Jones on the other side of this as Sam Gerard, the head of the U.S. Marshals, sent in there to grab Dr. Richard Kimball, who's just escaped a bus crash. Our fugitive has been on the run for 90 minutes. Average foot speed over uneven ground, barring injuries, four miles an hour. That gives us a radius of six miles. One out of each and every one of you is a hard target search. Every gas station, residence, warehouse, farmhouse, hen house, outhouse, or dog house in that area. Checkpoints go up at 15 miles. Your fugitive's name is Dr. Richard Kimball. You know, he's convicted of killing his wife, even though he says that he didn't kill his wife, and Tommy Lee Jones doesn't care. He's just there to do his job. But this movie, what I like most about it is it's a great thriller. It's entertaining throughout. Great performances, again, by Harrison Ford and Tommy Lee Jones. But my favorite scene in this movie is a little scene where Dr. Richard Kimball is trying to change his look in a hospital. And there's a kid sitting on the gurney there. They think this guy's a janitor. They just ask him to move this kid down the hall and nothing more than that. But because he's a doctor and he's a good doctor, he looks at his chart and he says... 
oh man, this kid's going to die if I don't make the changes on this. And he does, pushes him into emergency surgery, tells him what needs to be done, puts it on the chart and heads out of there. Those little moments like that, honestly, I get choked up every time I see that scene because this man who's just been convicted of killing his wife, railroaded by the system, now he's a fugitive on the run, but he still has time to save another kid's life. I think that is fantastic. Those little moments in this movie help to push it over the top from being just a regular run-of-the-mill thriller. Even its sequel, 1997's U.S. Marshals, which is basically the same movie, just swap out Harrison Ford for Wesley Snipes, is still pretty good. Not as good as the original, though. If you haven't seen The Fugitive, check this one out. And then for 1994, this one was really hard for me, actually, because 1994 has one of my all-time favorite films in it, but you also had so many other classics. I mean, you had the great run of Jim Carrey with Ace Ventura, The Mask, and Dumb and Dumber. You had the Shawshank Redemption. You had Forrest Gump winning Best Picture. Tom Hanks won Best Act that year. But for me, it's always going to be Quentin Tarantino's Pulp Fiction. This is one of my favorite movies ever. It's actually my second favorite film ever made. It's the one that got me into movies. Without Pulp Fiction, I probably wouldn't be a film fan. I was just fascinated by the story they were telling non-linearly. I had never seen that before. I definitely saw Pulp Fiction at a way too young age. But I credit that movie, along with my mother, for my love of film. And that's a big one for me. That's the movie that put John Travolta back on the map. Bruce Willis was probably the biggest name at the time. Introduced a lot of people to Uma Thurman. And then you get great performances in there by Ving Rhames, Eric Stoltz, Patricia Arquette. But the star of this movie in his best role is Samuel L. Jackson as Jules. What again? Say what again? I dare you. I double dare you, motherfucker. Say what one more goddamn time. The best scenes in this movie are the opening scene where Jules and Vincent are going to grab this guy, get the briefcase back from Marcellus Walls. Jules does this incredible monologue right before he shoots the kid, and then they walk out of there. But what really helps drive this movie along are the conversations, the dialogue, the snappy dialogue, the, what Quentin Tarantino became most known for, that realistic dialogue, what people would really be talking about, you know, talking about foot massages, royals with cheese. You know, all that doesn't work unless that's a Quentin Tarantino script. Even though Quentin Tarantino has only made only nine movies to this point, he has also written some great scripts that you might not even realize. One of my personal favorite films ever, True Romance. And he also did some touch-up dialogue work on Crimson Tide, another Tony Scott movie. So Tarantino knows how to write, and he's one of the best writers ever. And this is arguably his masterpiece. In my opinion, it is. Tarantino has never hit the highs of Pulp Fiction, but that's an impossible high to reach. A ton of his movies are just as good. It's just, if I'm going with my heart here, I have to pick Pulp Fiction. And then for 1995, we have David Fincher's Seven, starring Morgan Freeman and Brad Pitt. Brad Pitt is a new cop on the job. He gets signed up with Morgan Freeman's character his last week on the job, and wouldn't you know it, a new serial killer, John Doe, is in town, and he's killing people based on the seven deadly sins. And they have to figure out who this this guy is and why he's doing it and then this movie just unravels into a masterpiece one of the most beautiful looking movies you'll ever see the fact we do not have a 4k of this is i think is a sin the, the city itself is a character. It's always raining. It's always gloomy. Just to show you how dark the world is that these characters have to live in. It looks realistic. I mean, just the cinematography in general is beautiful. But then just throwing some great performances by Morgan Freeman and Brad Pitt. Brad Pitt was firing in all cylinders. It's the same year he did 12 Monkeys. So this year he was put on the map. Morgan Freeman was riding the high of Unforgiven, Shawshank Redemption. So this is the real highs of highs of Morgan Freeman. Morgan Freeman had been a working actor for a long time but once we got to seven 
that was it. Morgan Freeman was one of the most coveted actors at the time. And then this put David Fincher on the map. After the failures of Alien 3, this is where people finally said, yes, that's the guy. And I don't think he's ever missed since this movie. I think since 7, he has pretty much either put out a good to great film. Alien 3 is really the only failure, and that's not even his fault. That's the fault of Fox's, unfortunately. But David Fincher himself, this is, in my opinion, his masterpiece. And that's a guy who's put out such great movies like The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, Fight Club, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, The Social Network. So for Seven to be his masterpiece, only his second film out of the gate, it really says something about David Fincher, the filmmaker. And then in 1996, we got the Coen Brothers, Fargo, starring Francis McDermott, Steve Buscemi, William H. Macy, many other actors appear in this movie. It's about a small town in North Dakota, Fargo, North Dakota, but these people actually live, I believe, in Minnesota. Francis McDermott is the chief of police. She unfortunately gets tasked with having to help out uncover a murder that happened on the highway to a, to it looks like a state trooper in North Dakota in Fargo, North Dakota, which I I mean the cinematography in this movie is gorgeous. That scene when the cop gets killed, he's wearing that red suit. The blood comes shooting at him in bright red. The lights of the headlights after Steve Buscemi kills the cop is just un incredible. It's a Coen Brothers script, so you know it's funny, it's quirky. Yeah, right now you're darn tootin'. But then the beauty of this movie is what really helps for me to love this movie better than any other Coen Brothers movie. This is my favorite Coen Brothers movie. And it's just because the story itself is amazing. I think it's a great story. It's a great plot. Just trying to uncover who these killers are, why they are kidnapping William H. Macy's wife, how they're all just tied together, what led to this. William H. Macy plays this bumbling idiot of a car salesman who just gets in over his head just because he feels like he's been disrespected by his father-in-law his whole life. And he just feels like he hasn't gotten to the point where he deserves. But he's really where he deserves because he's not that intelligent based on all the mistakes he makes in this movie. This is probably William H. Macy's most famous performance until we got to Shane. Shameless. He pops up all the time. He was just a big time character actor. But until we got the Shameless, this is probably what he was most famous for with that insanely great accent that he's doing in this whole movie. Everyone's doing a great accent, you know. Oh, you betcha. Yeah, I mean, this is probably where a lot of people realize that Frances McDermott is one of our greatest actresses. I believe she won her first Academy Award for this performance. Well-deserved, her first of three. Frances McDermott has become one of our greatest actresses of all time. I mean, she got started in the 80s with Blood Simple, but she was really firing all cylinders. Obviously, she's working with her husband here. And he knows exactly how to use her in the best way possible. But this movie, again, well acted throughout, well shot, funny, yet dealing with a very dark plot. So, I mean, this is the reason why we got four seasons of the Fargo TV show, which are equally as good as this movie, but they'll never be able to hit the highs of Fargo. Once we got to 1997, I actually don't have a Blu-ray of 4K for this because there is no 4K. And that's Paul Thomas Anderson's Boogie Nights. I think this is Paul Thomas Anderson's masterpiece. Yes, he has made There Will Be Blood, which is also a masterpiece, but this is the one I think that is his best film. He has pretty much never missed either. I mean, I think that Magnolia is not the greatest of movies, and Inherit Vices, eh, it's okay. It's well shot. You can't argue that. But Boogie Nights, it's one of those sweeping epics as we go through the 70s and 80s through the porn business. We get to deal with a bunch of great um, characters played by Mark Wahlberg, Heather Graham, William H. Macy again, Burt Reynolds. I mean, there. this is a star-studded cast, and we're dealing with 
the porn industry in the late 1970s and the early 80s as we shift from, you know, shooting on film to shooting on VHS, you know, we kind of lose that filmmaking process of the porn industry where it used to be a little bit more highbrow. Now we kind of shift into what the porn industry would become, which is just just shooting in like shitty areas, not even worrying about sets anymore and just how that has an effect on the players in this world because they have a nice little family and then once this industry starts to unravel, so do all of their relationships, the way they care about each other. Mark Wahlberg turns in arguably his best performance in this. Burt Reynolds was nominated for an Academy Award. He would have probably won it if he didn't get in his own way and talk shit about the movie before it came out. You know, this movie has one of those like just sweeping epics like Goodfellas. It's very similar to Goodfellas. You can tell that it inspired it, you know, especially with a lot of the the wonders that are in this movie with some of the great shots, especially the opening shot when we first get into the club and then the one on New Year's Eve 1980 when Will, leading up to William H. Macy doing what he does in this movie, which is another fantastic shot and just symbolizes the end of the 1970s and going into the 1980s. Just beautiful imagery there. I can't say a bad thing about Boogie Nights. I think that this is a 5-star, 10 out of 10 film, and if you haven't seen it, definitely check this one out. And then from 1998, we move on from Paul Thomas Anderson to Wes Anderson and his film Rushmore. This was his second film after Bottle Rocket. I think that this is actually still his best film. This is probably what introduced everyone to Jason Schwartzman. Put Bill Murray back on the map as more than just a comedic actor, even though this is performance in here is hysterical as Herman Bluth. I think he does a fantastic job in this movie, but I think this is where we started to finally see the dramatic Bill Murray that a lot of people would probably know from this point on when movies like Lost in Translation. You know, before this, he was mostly just known as the comedic actor. Obviously, he had shown some dramatic chops in movies like Groundhog Day or Quick Change, but this is really where it took off, and he helped fund the movie. There was a movie, a shot that didn't end up in the movie with a helicopter that Bill Murray had such faith in Wes Anderson, he's worked with Wes Anderson ever since then, that he actually paid for it out of pocket for them to get the shot, and then they ended up cutting it from the movie. So that should just tell you what you need to know about Bill Murray the person, I guess. You know, we've heard all these bad things about him on set. I just think he's kind of a, a little bit of an asshole. I don't think he realizes it sometimes, I, but that's just my guess. I can't speak for how everybody else feels about him, but I've always loved Bill Murray. I love his performance in this movie. I love Jason Schwartzman's performance in this movie. I love that this is kind of like Wes Anderson before we really get into Wes Anderson. So, like, it's still a little pulled back on what he would be most known for for movies like The Grand Budapest Hotel or even in movies like the Royal Tenenbaums, where, like, you know, the set design, we always center the shot, you know, everything looks crisp and clean and perfect, and, you know, it's kind of got that tweed look to it that he would always go for with all of his movies going forward. It's a little bit more pulled back here. It feels like 1998 every time I watch this movie. It kind of transports me back in a weird way. I think that's just a connection to it for me. It feels like 1998, so when I watch this movie, I do get nostalgic feelings for it, even though I didn't grow up anywhere near this. I have no relation to any of these characters. There's just a certain tone to it that reminds me of that era that I have just this connection to this movie, and I love this movie. It's still my favorite Wes Anderson movie, and I really do think you should check this out if you haven't seen it. And then once we get to 1999, we're talking about David Fincher again, and that's his masterpiece of Fight Club. Now, this movie is not as good as Seven, in my opinion, and it was really hard for me for 1999 not to pick The Matrix, but I gotta be honest with myself, and 
Fight Club is one of those important movies that I think everybody should see. I know I feel like people miss the message on this. You know, they always people were just talking about fighting and that's what they thought this movie was about, not realizing it's about toxic masculinity, it's about consumerism, it's about how we are just stuck to the items that we buy. That's what defines us, not the human beings that we are. Once we get ourselves in debt, that's it. You know, we are just slaves to those material things, just go walking through life a zombie being and so this movie is about the person you are and the person that you want to be hence the whole tyler durbin arc again i'm not going to spoil the ending to this movie if you haven't seen it it is one of the biggest and best endings in a film history one of the best twist endings came out the same year as the sixth sense also which also has one of the most famous twist endings this one though unlike the sixth sense i didn't have spoiled for me so the first time i saw this i was absolutely shocked great performances in here by both brad pitt and edward norton arguably the best for both uh brad pitt probably not my favorite but this is probably my favorite edward norton movie either this or primal fear i think those were his best performances he does turn out a great performance in american history acts too but from what i understand about edward norton he's just one of those actors that always gets in his own way too he's a little bit arrogant a little bit smug but we don't have to worry about that in this beautiful movie because again just like david fincher's all of david fincher's movies because he got started in the music videos he just knows how to get perfect shots and this movie is filled with them you also pull up great performances from meatloaf because he was robert paulson i'm a big meatloaf fan he's one of my favorite musical artists of all time so seeing him in this movie is always funny to me i thought he turns out the best he could do so if you haven't seen fight club which i'm sure most people have definitely check this one out and then we move on to 2000 with american psycho and this movie takes place in the 1980s it stars christian bale he plays this man struggling with his own mental disorder but it's also about the 1980s and the yuppie crowd and what they were doing you know these guys were just basically stockbrokers trading stocks on wall street by really getting involved in drugs and prostitution and in this case murder or is he committing murder we're not too sure what exactly is going on in this guy's mind what exactly is causing him to do this this is probably christian bale's best performance even better than his batman performance or his performances in the fighter i think he was made to play this role he's perfect in it we also get some great performances from willem dafoe in here we get a young Jared Leto, although I, this came out the same year as Requiem for a Dream, so this is kind of the rise of Jared Leto, but that scene with them and Huey Lewis in the news is iconic. Undisputed masterpiece is Hip to Be Square, a song so catchy, most people probably don't listen to the lyrics. Just him explaining to him about Huey Lewis in the news, and then he's also explaining about Phil Collins to these guys right before he gets ready to wind up and kill him with an axe, and he's just dancing around the he's just dancing around the set. This probably put Christian Bale on the map as one of the world's best actors, and then just get some fantastic scenes in this, and and just some so many quotable lines like "I have to return some videotapes" is a line that I have been quoting since the first time I saw this movie. American Psycho is pretty much a masterpiece, so if you haven't checked that one out, I highly recommend that. And then from 2001, we got David Lynch's Mulholland Drive. Arguably his masterpiece. It's probably my favorite movie from him. I have a hard time picking either this or Lost Highway. One day I'm going to have to really test my theory and watch them back to back. They're very similar movies. Lost Highway, they never say directly it takes place in L.A., but Mulholland Drive is very much an L.A. story. It's about coming to Hollywood with all of these dreams. Naomi Watts, the very beginning of this movie, shows up in Hollywood all her dreams and then this movie turns into a nightmare and it's showing you what hollywood could be and can be and what it can do to you it can consume you take over your life and ruin you and we see this throughout this incredible movie 
Um, this movie was originally supposed to be a pilot for a TV show. David Lynch had worked on TV previously with Twin Peaks, and that's what this was supposed to be. But once they found out it wasn't going to get picked up, they turned it into a movie, gave it a conclusion. But this movie is still very much open to interpretation. It's got some horrific imagery in it, just like every other David Lynch movie. Imagery that might not get explained to you because David Lynch is famous for not telling you what his movies are about. It's open to interpretation. So my interpretation of this movie has always been that it's about the nightmare of what Hollywood can be, what the Hollywood Hills can be filled with, the monsters that live there. Despite looking beautiful on screen, it can still be a nightmare behind the scenes. And that's what I think Mulholland Drive is. So if you haven't seen Mulholland Drive, I highly recommend this one as well. Speaking of Naomi Watts, in 2002, we got one of my top three favorite horror films ever, and that is The Ring. This movie, I'm telling you, not many horror movies in my lifetime have scared me, but The Ring did. I couldn't finish it the first time I saw it. I had to come back a couple days later because once they get into that attic and they start peeling away the tree, that's where I, I, I was done. But this movie follows around Naomi Watts' character who is trying to uncover, she's a journalist, what happened to her niece. How did she pass away? She uncovers that a videotape she saw after you watch it, you get a phone call and they tell you that in seven days you are going to die. So this movie, she's on a ticking clock. She has seven days to find out what is going on, what happened to her niece, and now what could possibly happen to her and her son if she doesn't uncover this mystery of this little girl and what happened. And this movie at the time was huge. I mean, this came out at the very end of VHS tapes. DVDs were on the rise, but... VHS tapes were still a thing. You still could check them out at Blockbuster and watch them at home. And you know, had that fear now. What if I get the ring tape on there? Although I remember at the time as well that people were like, mm, it's just images on a screen. But those images do lead to a girl calling you up and telling you you were going to die in seven days. So you better make sure that you get on the horn and fix that before you end up getting killed. So this movie was just amazing at the time. This was also the rise of when they put these blue filters over just movies and horror movies in general at the time. I think The Ring did that the best. But unfortunately, a lot of films for like the next five or six years would really abuse this blue-green filter that they used in this movie. Never were able to recapture what they did in this film. And then once we get to 2003, we get Tim Burton's Big Fish. And I absolutely love this movie. It's, it kind of goes a little bit against type for Tim Burton. It's still got the Tim Burton quirks in there. You know, we go to the circus, you get Danny DeVito in this movie. It still feels like the magic and the fairy tale worlds that Tim Burton would create but a little less gothic this doesn't feel like Beetlejuice or Edward Scissorhands or even like Ed Wood this feels more of like a regular old-fashioned fairy tale movie with a little bit of Tim Burton sprinkled on top and the star of this movie is Ewan McGregor he plays the younger version of this guy's father who is as we find out early in the movie he's dying now but he wants to reconnect with his son his son has never believed all the stories that he's told him he's always felt like he was a liar or he just over exaggerated the truth just too much that he doesn't even understand the man who his father was but as the movie goes on they get a better understanding of each other it really turns into just one of the most beautiful father-son movies that really builds up to an epic conclusion that if you don't have a heart I can't imagine you not crying when you see this movie it, it really does break you down at the very end it, it's a beautiful beautiful movie with again beautifully shot some beautiful images they go to this town in this movie that has no streets nothing has gone through it they don't wear shoes in it the way it is lit it's one of the most beautiful and fantasy like towns I have ever seen in a film and to put it in this little movie like Big Fish 
really says a lot about it. I definitely think you should check out Big Fish if you haven't seen it. And then in 2004, we get Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. This one was actually written by Charlie Kaufman, who I think has written many great movies, including Being John Malkovich, Adaptation, and then he's directed some great movies himself, as well as Synecdoche, New York, and I'm thinking of ending things. So he always makes these mind-bending stories, but also these like little quirky stories, these little these movies that really kind of don't give you the answers, and they always just feel a little bit strange, a little bit off. This one actually playing with uh, in a sci-fi world. What if there was a machine that you could erase the memories of your past relationship? Or you could just pick out one memory you want to erase. Like, say your dog died, and because the pain is too hard, you want to erase all the memories of it just so you can go on. And that's what this movie is exploring. Kate Winslet decides to erase the memories of her boyfriend, Joel, played by... Jim Carrey in this movie and then he decides after she does that that he wants to do the same but as the movie is going on he realizes he wants to hold on to those memories pain is what makes us live and that's what makes us human so he's trying to hold on to every last memory even after he's made this decision and just like in every other like Charlie Kaufman designed movie you know we get some fantastic imagery in here just like the world falling apart around him we get some stuff that might be a little bit funny a little bit strange if you haven't seen this movie it might be a little bit shocking to see exactly what the plot of this movie is combined with actually what's going on on your screen it could feel like almost like an acid trip at points but it is done fantastic it also takes Takes place on Long Island in the winter, and it really does feel like that. They really did capture that well, you know, the train to Montauk. So this movie was speaking to me, and I'm a huge Jim Carrey fan. And seeing Jim Carrey do drama, that was still pretty new at the time. The Truman Show had only come out six years before that, and he hadn't really dived too much into drama yet. He had done Man on the Moon, but he wasn't a real full-blown dramatic actor yet. But this is the movie where people can point to and say, you know what, Jim Carrey can act. He's more than just a comedic actor. Look at the performance, the emotional performance that he turned out in Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. If you haven't seen this one, again, just like all the others, this one is a pretty much a perfect film for me. It's one of my top 30 movies of all time. I go back to it every single year. I think you should check this one out. And then you guys all know I'm a huge Batman fan. And in 2005... We got Batman Begins, and I actually didn't even see this one in the movies. I was so worried about it. You know, Batman and Robin had come out eight years before, and really, people were really low on Batman. Look at the box office for this and what would happen between this movie and The Dark Knight, the hype that would happen, because people were skeptical about Batman Begins. You know, Christopher Nolan was an unproven director at the time. He had done Memento and Insomnia as far as, like, mainstream movies go, so he did one more movie before Memento. But really, he was kind of an unknown director, and Warner Brothers gave him the keys to the city when it comes to Batman, one of their flagship characters. And he did a full 180 on what Joel Schumacher was doing. He said he decided to do a full-blown, realistic approach to the Bruce Wayne and Batman character. Give him an origin story. And Batman Begins, for me, is my second favorite Batman film of all time. Only behind 1989's Batman. You know, which re you could argue is the origin story of the Joker. And this time we get to see the origin story of Batman. The chase scene in the streets is one of the best chase scenes ever. They try and recreate it in The Dark Knight Rises. To lesser effects, still good, but nothing like how it does in this movie. This one also kind of has this very, like, orange, burnt orange, amber tone to it as far as the visuals go and I think it works perfectly for this movie the score is fantastic Christian Bale is the perfect Bruce Wayne and Batman we get a great Gary Oldman performance in this Katie Holmes turns out a great performance I had wish she would have returned for the Dark Knight because I had a hard time with the actor switch but I think she does a good job in this movie Killian Murphy is great as the Scarecrow I mean this is almost a flawless Batman movie there's nothing I can say that isn't going to tell that isn't going to tell you that this is a 10 out of 10 five-star movie. And then once 
once we get to 2006, well, Christian Bale and Christopher Nolan decided to team up again, and this time they decided to grab Hugh Jackman, and they made The Prestige. This movie just tells the tale of two magicians who can't stop competing with each other. One is always trying to outdo the other, and Christian Bale's character decide, comes up with this incredible trick where he can go through one door and appear on the other, other side of the stage instantly. Now, these are magicians. They do not believe that there is real magic. They believe that there is some kind of trick that is going on. And they're just trying to figure out the trick. And they're just trying to figure out who is better. Who is the better magician? They cannot end this competition. They will do anything anything to beat the other there's also some personal issues you know we get a great Scarlett Johansson performance in this movie as well very small performance and they have some personal issues that don't even involve magic and then you know um there's these fantastic images through this movie a great David Bowie performance as well as Tesla and we get some great shots of like these lights in a field this might be one of Christopher Nolan's best shot films it's one of his more grounded films you know yes we get the special effects the real practical effects that he loves to use it feels a little bit more darker in tone, more of like a dramatic film. Something we would see him do more with Dunkirk and what I expect them to do more in Oppenheimer. And this movie for me is just, it's just great. The story is great. Another one of those movies with a fantastic twist endings that Christopher Nolan would love to do with movies like The Dark Knight Rises and Inception. So definitely check out The Prestige if you haven't seen this one. And then 2007 was a really tough year because like I said, Paul Thomas Anderson made There Will Be Blood. But the Coen brothers, at the same time in the same state, actually, were making No Country for Old Men. And I think No Country for Old Men is my favorite of those movies. It stars Josh Brolin, Woody Harrelson, and in his best performance ever, and as one of the greatest performances of a villain ever portrayed on screen, Javier Bardem. This guy is a monster. One of the scariest villains that you will ever see. He is just a force. He's like the shape in the Halloween movies. That's it. You can't stop him. He has has one goal and one goal in mind and that is to kill at any means necessary he's doing it for a job but he is the best at that job you are not going to convince him to stop so don't even bother and that performance just shows on screen and on top of that you get the coen brothers so you get a great script an amazingly shot movie this is actually a period piece that takes place in the 1980s it looks fantastic on your screen you're going to be blown away by the visuals i mean also putting a silencer on a shotgun I had never seen that before, and when he's going around hotel room, hotel room, shooting people, just unbelievable stuff, and then obviously the cow, whatever the hell that is, where you put the cow thing into somebody's head to kill the cows, but he's using it on humans, man, that, those images are just so violent and menacing, the looks on Javier Bardem's face, I mean, that's what drives the movie, but there is still a great plot and story throughout the rest of the movie, and just because it's a Coen Brothers movie, it's just so well shot. It's just, it's almost a flawless film, and it's hard for me to pick this one over There Will Be Blood because that movie is also fantastic, and it is also a masterpiece. In 2007, that was one of those years where it was really hard to pick just one movie. And then once we get to 2008, 2008 did have some great movies. The Summer of 08 is a very big summer for me as far as a film fan. I remember leading up to that summer, there were so many movies I couldn't wait to see, but the big one was The Dark Knight. That movie I saw three times on opening day. I saw it in theaters 10 times now to this point. I've probably seen this movie already over 100 times. I actually think I burnt myself out of this movie. That's, that's why it's not in my top two Batman films. It's still number three, but for a long time, this was my favorite. But I have seen it so many times to the point now where I'm just like, I, I don't know if I can do it anymore. I need to take a few years off just because 
I abused the hell out of this movie. It's still the best film of 2008. I mean, Heath Ledger's performance as the Joker is incredible. He won an Academy Award after he had already passed away. One of the only actors to ever do that. Well-deserved. And for a superhero film, you know, that just never happens. They don't take superhero films seriously. I'm so happy they took The Dark Knight seriously and gave this guy the award he deserved for an incredible performance. Christian Bale's back. He does another great job in this movie. You know, this movie definitely became bigger than anyone could have ever imagined. I think that Heath Ledger's death actually helped that. The IMAX shot scenes, I think this was the first movie to really use those IMAX cameras. I think they only had one or two. And it's so noticeable in the opening scenes, which was inspired by Heath, which I think is one of the best opening scenes in movie history when they're robbing the banks. No, no, I kill the bus driver. No, love that movie. The only thing that really is a big flaw in this movie is I'm not a big fan of the ferry scene at the very end. I get the message of it, but I've never really been a huge fan of that. But the rest of the movie is good enough to overpower that scene, and it's still the best movie of 2008. And then in 2009, we got David Bowie's Sons, Duncan Jones Moon, starring Sam Rockwell as he plays dual performances in this movie. It's basically just his movie, other than Kevin Spacey does the voice of a robot in this movie, basically, or a droid. One day, Sam Rockwell, he has a job on the moon. Basically, he's just harvesting energy for Earth. The trip there is about to come to an end. He's about to be sent home to Earth. But wouldn't you know it, he ends up crashing his buggy in there. And, you know, someone comes and rescues him. And who's it turn out to be? But himself. Another version of him, and I don't want to spoil what exactly the reasoning behind that is. I think you can guess, but this movie is just Sam Rockwell acting against himself, trying to uncover the mystery of what is going on, of what is exactly happening here. He's supposed to be going home. They assumed he was dead. They didn't know where he went, so they sent in this other guy who looks exactly like him to the moon to do the same work that he was doing, and this guy doesn't understand why another version of himself is there as well. So it's about uncovering that mystery, and it's also a philosophical movie about life, and I love philosophical movies, and this is one of those grounded sci-fi movies with not a lot of action, which is why I don't think it performed that well, but if you're a thinking person, I really do think that you are going to love Moon. I realize now that this video is going to show you guys how much I love Christopher Nolan, but in 2010, we got Inception, and this is the movie that came out between Christopher Nolan's Two Dark Knight and the Dark Knight Rises movies. And this movie, for me, is better than both of those movies. This, I go back and forth with, is this his best movie or is Interstellar his best movie? I, I Depending on the day, I will say Inception, but other days I'm going to say Interstellar. And I really do think it's because he knows how to combine these thinking philosophical movies along with these epic blockbuster shots and scenes. And he does it all practically, shoots it with the IMAX cameras. So in a world where we get these CGI fests, action movies he's making more grounded movies with still having those big effects and he's doing them for real the rotating set in this the hotel that really was done it was really done he really built that it looks fantastic you know you get those dreams and i and that's the whole thing is unraveling the mystery like that's what keeps people coming back is trying to understand what this movie is understanding the world that he has created it's a fully created world none of this stuff is real it's based on real theories but none of this stuff is possible at least not yet you never know it could end up happening happening but it turns into a heist movie i mean well acted leonardo dicaprio turns in one of his best performances killian murphy again tom hardy this is probably where a lot of people start to realize you know what tom hardy he's a pretty damn good actor one guy i always wanted to point out ken watanabe that guy is a fan 
fantastic actor. He turns in an amazing performance in this movie. He was also in Batman Begins. I love every time this guy appears on screen. He does a great job in this movie. But this movie, again, the special effects, the Hans Zimmer score, you really can't say a bad thing about Inception. I have a hard time doing it because I just absolutely love this movie. Once we get to 2011, we get the resurrection of the Mission Impossible franchise with Brad Bird's Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. Now, this is actually going to spoil a future video for me, but Ghost Protocol is my favorite of the Mission Impossible movies. This is the one where they go to Dubai and Tom Cruise really put himself on the side of the world's largest building and climbed up it. But I think that Ghost Protocol had some of the best effects in any of the movies, had some of the best stunts in any of the movies, and also has the best script in any of the movies. This is what Brad Bird, I think, does better than what we would get with the Christopher McQuarrie movies, is I think he has that combination of humor and seriousness. He's, like, the one who really made Simon Pegg, like, kind of get a bigger role in his movies and actually get to show his acting chops. Uh, you know, we get Ving Rhames back again. But again, Tom Cruise is the star of these movies as Ethan Hunt, and he does a fantastic job. This is arguably his best performance. I think either this or Mission Impossible Fallout. But this is kind of where we got the start of, you know what Tom Cruise is going to be doing for the rest of his career? He's going to put his light, he's going to put his life on the line for us to keep making these Mission Impossible and Top Gun and these over-the-top action movies. And for me, this is the best of them. It's not as good as Top Gun Maverick, but for 2011, this is the best film of that year in my opinion opinion and then once we get to 2012 we actually get a very underrated Denzel Washington performance and Robert Zemeckis movie in the movie Flight not only is the opening plane crash scene fantastic as far as special effects go but then this unravels into an addiction storyline dealing with Denzel Washington's character and his addiction to not just alcohol but to many different drugs also including cocaine and how he actually develops a relationship with somebody else who is struggling with their own addictions, their addiction to heroin, and how they're overcoming them, even though they come from two very different walks of life. Denzel Washington was the only person who could land this plane. It just turns out that the only way he was able to actually land this plane, he was just under the influence of alcohol and cocaine at the time, which does raise these moral questions of, well, nobody else in the simulator was able to do this. It just so happens that this guy with a severe addiction was. Is it still illegal? Should a pilot be flying the plane like that? It's raising all of these questions. Also, you get a great John Goodman performance in here. One of his best as the drug dealer for Denzel Washington. He's really just hamming it up, doing a great job. But for Denzel Washington, this is very much an anti-hero. We're so used to Denzel the hero. It's really nice to see him do a performance like this where we see the struggles of him. We get to see him actually play around a little bit more with a different type of character than what we're used to seeing him play. And I think he was nominated for Best Actor. And in my opinion, he probably should have won. This is his most underrated performance. You know, a lot of people remember Training Day. I think this is actually a better performance than that. He turns in a phenomenal, phenomenal performance. If you haven't seen Flight... Don't let that one pass you by. And then once we get to 2013, we get Denis Villeneuve's Prisoners. This one stars again Hugh Jackman, Jake Gyllenhaal. And in this movie, we're following around Hugh Jackman as his daughter has recently been kidnapped with his friend's daughter. And he is not dealing with this well at all. He is unraveling. Jake Gyllenhaal plays one of the cops investigating this. And he thinks that Hugh Jackman has something to do with it. Or he thinks that Hugh Jackman is going to fly off the edge and do something that he's going to regret, and he's trying to prevent that. Paul Dano also pulls in a great performance in here as the guy who's suspected of kidnapping these kids. I'm not going to tell you the ending of this movie because this is another one of those movies that builds up to a fantastic...
fantastic conclusion. But the shining star of this movie, if you guys know Denis Villeneuve, all of his movies are beautiful. This is definitely a more pulled back, grounded version of the big epics that we would get with movies like Arrival and Blade Runner 2049 and now the Dune movies. This is much more of a grounded, contained story, but it still looks beautiful. The scene of Jake Gyllenhaal driving in the snow and the lights reflecting off of that is one of the most beautiful scenes I have ever seen. One of the most beautifully shot. And this movie still doesn't have a 4K Blu-ray, which is pretty crazy because most of Denis Villeneuve's movies have come to 4K Blu-ray. I think it's just this and Enemy that haven't. And some of the movies that he had made before, he you know, he really took off. But this movie deserves a 4K because it is a great movie. It's also one of the harder movies to watch. If anyone, you know, dealing with kidnapping of kids is definitely hard. And there's a scene in the bathroom in this movie involving Hugh Jackman and Paul Dano. It's a tough, tough watch, I'm not going to lie. But it's so well acted and it's just a fantastic movie if you haven't seen this one. And we're going to circle back to Christopher Nolan for 2014. And that movie is Interstellar starring Matthew McConaughey and Hathaway. Jessica Chastain, Academy Award winner Jessica Chastain. And of course, it's a Christopher Nolan movie. So Michael Caine pops up in this one. Also, another great role by him. And this movie tells the story of how Earth is becoming unsurvivable. You know, we're running out of crops. We're not going to be... All we have left now is really corn. And that doesn't look like that's going to be lasting very much longer. You know, we're going to have... A, we have like these dust... You remember the Dust Bowl? We're having a ton of these cities just get overwhelmed with dust. The world is almost unlivable. So Matthew McConaughey, a, for, a former NASA pilot, is being tasked with finding us another survivable planet. Uh, it turns out that a wormhole opened for, up for us in the middle of the solar system. Him and Hathaway, a few other people, are sent into this. There's three planets on the other side. And you have to go check them out to the best of your abilities. And that leads into some fantastic scenes, including going to going on a planet where time is speeding up so much that every minute on there is seven is seven years on Earth. And actually, if you hear the ticking clock that's going on in that scene with the Hans Zimmer score playing, every second that goes by, you hear the clock ticking. That's another year on Earth. So when they get off of that planet, you have one of the most heart-wrenching scenes with Matthew McConaughey just watching a video of his daughter played by Jessica Chastain there. That scene broke me. I broke down crying the first time I saw that scene. And then the rest of the movie is an emotional roller coaster. I know a lot of people don't like the third act of this movie. It works pretty well for me. I think it's a satisfying conclusion. This is a movie that I finished it and I immediately put it back on. I absolutely adore this movie like i said earlier i go back and forth whether inception or interstellar is christopher nolan's best movie i don't know for sure it's really hard for me gun to my head today i'm gonna say inception but you know tomorrow could be interstellar i really i, I don't know what to pick i love both of those movies and in 2015 we got robert edgar's the witch this is the one that put him on the map put uh anya taylor this one put anya taylor joy on the map turned her into one of the world's biggest actresses that we know now and it just tells the tale of a very religious family up in the new england area who basically get shunned out in the world they're not allowed in the religion anymore they're too religious even for them and now they have to live out in the world by themselves and unfortunately this family now has been overtaken by a witch someone they don't see and it just turns into this dark scary tale about a monster who we can't see while they're living in the woods this is the kind of movie that's going to get under your skin this is the first time we see robert edgar's really playing around with these images that we would see him using all of his movies going forward you know the imagery is like what's gonna stick with you what's gonna get under your skin you know it's not one of those monsters that you could see it's one of those kinds of movies that 
the more you watch it, the more grimy you feel, the more nasty you feel, the more dirty you feel. Like the world that he has created here, it just feels like there's a tension at all times that this family is just not going to survive. No matter what they do, no matter how much they pray, unfortunately they have been chosen. They don't even realize it. And it's just about the unraveling of this entire family from beginning to end. Just like a lot of great movies, the third act is very satisfying. But I know some people do have complaints for about it but for me i thought that, that was it's extremely scary i thought they did a great job with how this movie ended and yeah it made anya taylor joy a star and for me robert edgar's is three for three but this might be his best movie i go back and forth between this and the lighthouse I'm not too sure. That's another one you'd have to ask me on that day, and maybe I'll have the right answer for you. And then once we got to 2016, we, we get a buddy movie, which we don't really get too many of these anymore, and we get the guy who actually wrote Lethal Weapon in Shane Black. So he knows how to write buddy movies. We come, we team up Ryan Gosling and Russell Crowe. Who would have thought those two would team up perfectly? But they ended up making a really fun movie with a great performance in there by Kim Basinger as well. And this movie is just a funny little movie. It's really just telling the tale about these two guys kind of is a noir movie when you really think about it. The mystery that they're trying to unravel ends up going in a million different places and it ends up in a place that you never thought. It takes place in the 1970s, so this movie is beautifully shot. Russell Crowe and Ryan Gosling have great chemistry. There's a reason why people have been asking for a Nice Guys too for all this time. You know, after this, I thought that Shane Black was going to be making more movies. Instead, he ended up making like a terrible Predators movie and I don't even know what he's doing right now, but I wish he would go back to the well and make another Nice Guys movie because these guys have great chemistry and man if it doesn't put you in the mood for you definitely check this one out and then in 2017 we got the movie that dethroned the toy story movies for me as the greatest pixar film ever and i really didn't expect it and that movie is coco one of the most beautifully looking animated films of all time it tells the tale about a kid who on the day of the dead holiday you know he wants to play the guitar but his family hates music so he decides to steal the guitar of one of the most famous people in this city, he decides he's going to... But when he plays that guitar, it turns him into a ghost. And now he's able to go into the world of the dead. And it's about his time trying to get back and seeing his family. Seeing everything that they're doing. And this family is searching for him. They don't know where he is. He ends up going and seeing like his old grandfather. And he ends up seeing this guy who was with his old grandfather. Who he believes might have actually killed him. And this movie, it tells a beautiful story about music. About another culture. You know, I think that's one thing about Pixar that they have done a really good job is exploring other cultures and what they believe in. And this movie is exploring such great dark subject, such great subject matter and dealing with death in kids movies. That's another thing that Pixar deals with. They make movies that are not just for adult. I mean, that are not just for kids, but for adults as well. They really know how to make a four quadrant animated movie and it's pixar so you know it's one of the most beautifully animated film the bridge that you see in this movie that orange bridge is absolutely gorgeous i remember this is one of the first movies i actually had ever seen in dolby cinemas and my jaw hit the floor i called my wife up after because i was actually crying the first time i saw this i was trying not to cry in front of all the kids i saw this movie alone i know you know families are there but uh, Remember You is one of the most beautiful songs. The soundtrack to this movie is one I listen to all the time. And every time they do the song Remember You, it's played differently for different emotions, whether it be upbeat or towards the end, it's played for, you know, to get you to cry. It's kind of there to manipulate her. And man, it manipulated me to cry just way too much. And it gets me every single time. Definitely check out Coco. I think it's Pixar's best film. And then we get to 2018 and we get Ari Aster's Hereditary. And this movie is 
My favorite movie, I think, of the last 10 years. This movie is 110% a masterpiece. It's dealing with some, again, really dark subject matter. It's about dealing with death, a family grieving. At, you know, This movie has one of the most shocking scenes in film history. I remember being in the theaters and the place went quiet. They linger on this shot. I mean, I'm sure you've heard about it, but I don't want to spoil anything. And... You know, the, when this happens and the way that the one kid has to deal with what just happened, I mean, I always thought he was a psycho for doing it. But if that happens, I don't know what you do. What do you do in that situation? And I mean, then again, with all the horrific imagery in this movie about a family that's being consumed basically by a cult and they don't even realize it. Many people wanted Tony Collette to get the Academy Award for Best Actress. She didn't even get nominated because this was a horror film. But this is Probably where the start of the term elevated horror came from. People saw this movie as more of like an art house horror film. You know, it's it's dealing with a lot of imagery and subtext where you have to read between the lines and unravel the mystery for yourself. You know, yes, there's jump scares, but it's not over-reliant on jump scares. It's reliant on tone and atmosphere, and I think it captured it perfectly. Beautiful cinematography. You know, Ari Aster... For me, this is easily his best movie. I wasn't the biggest fan of Midsommar. I haven't seen Bo's Afraid yet. I'm hoping to check that one out soon. But he knows how to shoot a movie. And this movie, I mean, it'll leave you reeling after you've seen this. This one will stick with you for a very long time. You'll be feel uncomfortable. This is one of those movies you have to take a shower after and just have a hard time believing that this is possible because let's just try and hope that it's not. So <laughs> let's just say that. But I do think that Hereditary is a fantastic film. It's one of the best films in the last 10 years. If you haven't seen it and you are and you're a horror fan, you're doing yourself a disservice. If you're not a horror fan, you might want to stay away from this one because it definitely will make you uncomfortable. And then in 2019, we're going back to the Quentin Tarantino realm with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, starring Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt. Plenty of other actors like Kurt Russell, Al Pacino pop up in this movie. You know, it's a Quentin Tarantino movie, so it's a star-studded cast. And it's a hangout movie, in my opinion. And the backdrop of this movie is the 1960s and the Manson family murders. But that's not the real shining star of this movie. It's really about exploring these characters of Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt and what they're playing. In Rick Dalton and Cliff Booth. Rick Dalton is the star. Cliff Booth is his stuntman. You know, it's about an actor who's having a hard time with, it, with aging. He's not as good as he was. He doesn't think he can ever be that again. It's official, old buddy. Who has been. So it's about tackling those issues for him. Cliff Booth feels like this man who, you know, he's kind of just going through the motions. He's had a hard life, we think. He might have killed his wife. We don't know for sure. If you read the book, maybe you do know for sure. And, you know, we get, again, fantastic music throughout this movie because it's a Tarantino movie. The dialogue is what helps move this movie forward. You know, people were a little bit upset because it's about the Manson family murders, but it's not. It's not really about that. Margot Robbie's character, I've heard plenty of people say you want it, you should cut her out. I 110% disagree. I think you need those scenes. Does anything of substance happen? Not necessarily to drive the plot of the movie along, but the story that they're trying to tell, I think it's very necessary to have her in this movie. I don't think this movie would be as good as it is without her, but I do see other people's points of that, and I completely understand because, yes, to get the same conclusion of this movie, you do not need her. She can be completely cut out. But personally, if I was making those decisions, I agree with Quentin Tarantino that she is a vital part to making this movie into what it is. So definitely check this one out if you haven't seen it. And for 2020, we have the film star Winston Duke and Zazie Beetz, Bill Skarsgård, 
And it was directed by Edson Oda. And that movie is Nine Days. This came out the same year as Soul. And I remember people saying, like, if you want to see a different version of Soul, a much more adult version of it, that's what this movie is. It's about a bunch of people. Well, I guess they're angels. And they have to get approved by Winston Duke. Only one of them is going to be sent to Earth as a human being and get to live life. They will not remember these moments or anything like that once they get to sent to Earth. So it's basically just choosing, like, it's picking out what the best human would be. But Winston Duke, who's the one who's going to choose one of these people, is having a hard time himself because one of the people he did choose at the very beginning of this movie, we find out, had killed themselves, which makes him have a hard time understanding if he's making the right decision in the choices he makes of what makes a good person. Is it the artistic side of them or are you trying to go for a person who would be the kind of person that falls in line, is going to always do the right thing, and is going to be just what you think a stereotypical human is. And that's why he's having a hard time picking between a character like Bill Skarsgård or Zazie Beetz. So the real star of this movie is Winston Duke, and it takes place in a world that's not a real world. And it is one of the most beautiful movies that you have ever seen. It feels so dreamy, and it builds up again to a fantastic conclusion. Winston Duke is such an underrated actor. If you just know him from the Black Panther movies, I mean, watch him in Us, watch him in this. Zazie Beats, I can't say enough good things about Zazie Beats from movies like Atlanta, Deadpool, Joker. She's just firing on all cylinders. I mean, Bill Skarsgård's Bill Skarsgård. You know, he can act. I feel like people only really know him from Pennywise the Clown, but the man is a great actor. And everybody who appears in this movie, please see this movie if you haven't seen it yet. And then we move on to 2021. This is one that I don't have a Blu-ray for because it doesn't have a physical release. And that is Bo Burnham's inside this movie was a netflix release it's basically a comedy special but i count it as a film because it's a film length and it's about bo burnham basically his time inside during the pandemic he was supposed to do a comedy special for people but instead he rented this house and he just basically made a set of songs or little stand-ups and everything like that but yet it kind of then unravels into what he's struggling with with being trapped inside or what the world has become you know he turns 30 years old while the pandemic is going on he can't celebrate it with other people if you guys remember the world at the time and i think it tackled that perfectly while combining it with comedy and then also combining it with emotions and drama and real life drama it feels like it's very natural and it feels very organic it doesn't feel forced or fake it really does feel like we're understanding Bo Burnham and I think that this movie is beautiful it's also hysterical some of the songs in this movie I think about all the time CEO entrepreneur born in 1964 Jeffrey Bo Burnham has always done that combination of music with his comedy I think he does it to great success. I think Bo Burnham is a fantastic, not just comedian, but actor and director. If you guys haven't seen 8th Grade, he directed that movie. He, he didn't do it all, and I think that this will probably be his legacy. I hope more people see it. We didn't get a physical release because it came to Netflix, so this is one I really does I really hope doesn't get lost to time, because it is also exploring the pandemic, which is probably an era that most of us would like to forget about. So, moving on to the last film on my list, because I'm not going to pick one for 2023, and and that is going to be my favorite film of 2022. And I'm going to go with the movie that is at the top of my list now. And that is Babylon. I absolutely love Babylon. This is another one of those like sweeping epics like Goodfellas or Boogie Nights. So those kind of movies speak to me. Damien Chazelle has made some of my favorite movies. In my opinion, he's four for four. I think the only one that kind of lags behind is First Man. 
But if you're talking about Whiplash, La La Land, and Babylon, I have loved those movies. I'm not even a musical fan, and I think La La Land is a masterpiece. But Babylon is probably going to end up being his legacy when he ends up passing away. He went for it. He threw everything he had and the kitchen sink at it. He had Brad Pitt, Margot Robbie. You know, you get so many great actors in this movie. Great actors in the leading performance. Exploring the silent era of Hollywood and transitioning into the talkies. Does that sound like Singing in the Rain? Well, that movie has a huge inspiration on this movie. And it shows it on screen right down to recreations that appear in that movie. But doing it in his own Denis Villeneuve way. So it's a little bit more raunchier, a little more dirtier. It can feel a little bit nasty. I know a lot of people had a hard time with that. The music is huge and epic it got nominated for academy award well deserved you know this movie i feel like is one that a lot of people had a hard time with it does it feel a little sloppy at points yeah it feels a little bit unorganized but you also appreciate that i love love what they did with this movie i think it's absolutely phenomenal beautiful set design beautiful practical effects you know margot robbie turns in arguably one of her best performances has she played characters like this in the past absolutely but brad pitt you really got to learn to appreciate Brad Pitt and just know that he's just more than that handsome guy. The guy is a fantastic actor. And this movie in general, yeah, oh, and also I didn't even say it, but a great little Tobey Maguire performance playing against type in here. And that, just dealing with how Hollywood is, that's the big thing about this movie. Again, dealing with, you know, the what Hollywood might look like, this dreamland but there is something dark to it. There is something nasty lurking under the shadows of Hollywood that really is what drives it forward. It's not what you think. Following your dreams is great. That's not the whole story of Hollywood. And I absolutely love that message in this movie. And I think it's told phenomenally. If you haven't seen Babylon, check that one out. And anyway, guys, thank you for being here with me on another episode of Let's Talk. I hope you enjoyed the Let's Talk podcast. I did it by myself. Next week, we should have Shamrock back, and we'll be diving back into the James Bond films. But if you like this episode, if you're listening to on podcast services, make sure you try and give us a five-star rating there. If you're watching this on YouTube, give us a like, hit that subscribe button, and then after you're done doing all of that, why don't you tell your friends about us? We'll be seeing you around. <laughs>